0: Hello, everyone. Good afternoon. Welcome to my November uh, se- uh, edition of my construction webinar series. Uh, for those of you joining me for the very first time, my name is Tashia Rasul. I am a partner here at Lois Law Firm, where I practice the defense of workers' compensation claims, but also I specialize in construction claims. I oversee a team uh, who handles uh, construction claims exclusively, the attorneys and the paralegals. Uh, They're very versed with how um, uh, the construction uh, sites work and all of the terminologies and uh, most importantly, all of the issues that are faced in um, litigating these claims and trying to reach global settlement with the goal of uh, reducing exposure for clients. Uh, We consider ourselves the experts in in this area and one of the reasons I bring this webinar series uh, once every month is to just do bare bones construction uh, defense 101. I touch a little on the general liability side to to, to the extent that I, I know what's happening on that side. Um, for those of you who have joined me in the past, welcome again. Thank you for continuing to follow me. All right, so happy November. I hope I hope you all had a great Halloween. I did with my kids took them out trick or treating. I now have a lot of candy to eat, so I am happy. All right, so what are we gonna discuss today? This month, we're talking about calculating uh, exposure in multi-jurisdictional cases. And what I mean by that is the workers' comp and the um, general liability or the civil or the third-party component. Um, So I'll talk about the factors to be taken into consideration when calculating exposure We'll talk about our friends Kelly and Burns and why they drive us crazy ever so often. And I'll do some uh, crunching of numbers and show you exactly how I calculate exposure and present it to my clients. And just a reminder, this is a live webinar. Um, So in the end, you'll have the opportunity to send me some questions. Hopefully I know the answers to your questions. Um, But if I don't have enough time Uh, you can also email me your questions and this is what the box is going to look like so type your questions in there and it'll pop up at my end all right so let's get into it um i hope you have a pen or pencil some paper and maybe some coffee or tea because i may bore you when it comes to the kelly and burn stuff all right so factors to be considered in the workers compensation claim now Claimants' demographics. Why do we need to take this into consideration? We're looking at the age, prior injuries. This gives us a really good idea if this claimant is going to go back to work, if he's planning going back to work. Usually, if it's a younger claimant, um, no prior injuries, they're a little more motivated um, sometimes to go back to work. If it's an older individual, they're just looking at retirement. And then we'll be on the hook for many, many years of um, potential um, benefits for them. We're also looking at whether an MSA is needed. This is very important because the medicals do make up a very big uh, uh component of any settlement, especially if the claimant's had multiple surgeries and also especially if the claimant is older and has more um, pre-existing uh, condition, degenerative conditions that are contributing to, um, you know, a failure to heal properly and so forth. They try to like convolute all of the treatment and then the MSA just uh, is, is driven up. We should also take into consideration any apportionment opportunities. This is golden. It's our opportunity to um, reduce our exposure by pointing our fingers to prior employers and insurance carriers. And if successful, it could help to reduce exposure significantly, especially in those occupational disease, uh, repetitive injury claims, where, for example, the claimant is a plumber or an electrician or an iron worker for 25, 30 years. And, you know, he's now in our job site for one month and is claiming that he has finally, um, you know, decided that he finally has injuries at results of his 25 years of um, work. And now we're trying to tack the liability back on the prior carrier. So this is very important and we should always be looking at our files for apportionment opportunities. Additional factors, medical status. this is very important. Um, for those of you who handle the workers' comp claims, you know we have e case. Uh, the claimant and uh, his doctors and his attorneys are responsible for uploading the medicals. This is how we check it every week. We're in there, looking at what the updated medicals are, what they're saying about degree of disability. Oh wait, he's being referred to Dr. Marola. he's going to be chopped up in a couple months. We know we we kind of know where the medicals are going to go based on who the claimant's attorneys are and who their doctors are. So it's good to know the medical status and based on this experience of knowing who's who and where it's going next, we're, we're kind of able to predict the medical future of any particular claim. We look at things also like is he actively treating or not really treating because if he's not, then we know it's kind of winding down, his injuries weren't serious and we're gonna wrap this up sooner rather than later. We look at the surgeries that the claimant underwent. I mean, we all know surgeries never make a claimant better, right? They, they always make them worse. Why? I, I don't know. Let's, let's, let's hear what the doctors say, deposition after deposition, right? They always come up with a reason. But um, we should always be uh, fighting this and um, keeping in mind the surgeries that the claimant underwent when we are getting an IME. So hopefully, the IME is going to say, "Well, the surgery actually helped the claimant to improve, or um, you know, it's it's it the claimant is expected to improve within the next six months as a result of the surgery." Um, we should also be looking at medications. So medications is really a driving factor of the medical component. I've seen uh, MSA after MSA that allocated. Uh, tens of thousands of dollars sometimes hundreds of thousands of dollars only to long-term medication use which i personally think is unnecessary um, because it's in the doctor's report saying that the claimant needs it uh the vendors and cms um you know they want to be overprotective and include this but ultimately uh whenever we are bound to the msa um, it drives up the exposure so that's something we want to take into consideration also Overall status of the claim. Looking at the claim holistically, uh, the claimant's return to work status. For the very few cases, especially the construction cases where the claimant actually returns to work, we like those because um, you know indemnity benefits are practically zero going forward, uh, provided he stays out of work. And usually, when they return to work, medical treatment dwindles also, right? Because they're fine; they're not seeking medical treatment to um, support their claim for indemnity benefits. So something we should always take into consideration. Legally, any fraud findings, one of the things that we always try to do is keep an eye out for fraud findings. Um, we communicate that with our GL uh, counterpart and they use it in any number of ways to, um, to leverage their claim, to negotiate settlement and so forth. Uh, fraud findings, um, for the most part, We would have a suspension of benefits, so that also cuts off indemnity payments, and that gives us a good good idea of where the potential exposure is going to be on the claim. And, of course, any permanency findings or potential permanency findings, um, this is is the the, the, the bow and the gift of the claimant, right? His, His permanency findings is going to determine what he's ultimately going to get in the claim Um, So if there's any SLU or LWIC findings in place, uh, we pretty much have to go by that. We'll talk a little more about that in this presentation. Or potential permanency findings, we can calculate it based on the impairment guidelines, the IME uh, doctor reports, and the claimant's medical reports. Definitely take that into consideration all right so i'll talk a little bit about the general liability claim some of the things that i've seen that i think we need to take into consideration in evaluating exposure um, from the comp side uh, the strength of the liability and damages claim how do we get this information we get it from our gl um uh counterpart right whether it's the gl claims jester or the GL, gl defense attorney i personally stay in touch with the gl defense attorney Try to talk to them ever so often to see what's going on in their claim, what they need from us, and um, most importantly, how they're feeling about their defenses on that end, right? Because that helps us to make a recommendation on our end, whether we should do a standalone or global settlement. The globals are usually preferred, just just, just so you know. Um, Jurisdiction, a lot of times I'm talking to my GL uh, defense counterpart and, you know, they talk about, well, in Queens, this is going to happen. And in Bronx, we expect this to happen. And in um, Richmond County, we expect this to happen. Um, they also give us good insight about, you know, what, what the is going to think in any of these um, ju- uh, jurisdictions. Right. So that helps us to get an idea of where where. We where where they think the GL claim is going to go, and of course potential exposure. Uh, I know this changes a lot of time. This information is not available in the very beginning of the GL claim because, you know, they have all sorts of experts that they're relying on to uh, help them calculate potential exposure. But as soon as they have any information, we start inquiring about it. Um, and that also gives us an idea of where we are or where we're headed on the workers' comp claim and settlement. And so I know I'm just saying in general terms, it gives us an idea. Um, it, it's hard for me to explain for, for these factors that I just went through. There's no uh, putting a number on it or um, like uh put in like a percentage on any of the factors. It's just based on our experience and how we see the cases go after doing them. I've been doing this for more than a decade now. Um, I just kind of know how some cases are going to resolve. And I gotta say, I'm usually pretty on point. All right, how to calculate exposure. So here we go. I apologize for any headache in advance. Now, there are two lines of exposure, the indemnity and the medical. In the grand majority of cases, we're closing out both of these at the same time. In some cases, we're closing out the indemnity, leaving the medical open, because the claimant uh, just wants to make sure he has enough coverage for uh, the future treatment. With the global settlements um, that I've talked about in, in previous webinars and that I'm a big proponent of, uh, we usually Uh, close at both the indemnity and the medical portion also. We just want the claims to go away, right? We don't want any additional exposure. So in addition to thinking about the indemnity and the medicals and where we want to go, we have to look back. We have to look back at the prior payments paid to date. There are some cases where we've paid out $10,000 total for indemnity and medicals. Those are the better cases. Other cases I've I've had we've paid hundreds of thousands in both the indemnity and the medicals and that creates a little more um, uh, complications with uh, the the crunching the numbers and determining uh, how to settle and when to settle the claims. So for indemnity we're talking about two main things here we're talking about SLU findings and Elwick findings. Now keep in mind, a lot of times we're settling cases even before we get to the permanency phase, right? So if there's no current finding, we try to use the IME report as a guidance. If we don't have an IME report, I'd recommend getting it because it's our own medical evidence. And we're not solely relying on on the claimant's uh, doctor's treatment plan uh, in in trying to predict a potential permanent uh, impairment. Um, In the meantime, I I usually use the claimant's doctor's findings as my worst case scenario, right? I never trust them for my best case, although I know I'm going to attack them on deposition and the claimant on cross-examination because I'm going to have a great IME. Um, I use it for a worst case just in case my my client wants to know, hey, do do you think we're going to end up with a 75 or a a permanent total disability? or let me take a look at what his doctor is saying. But keep in mind, we're going to have our own IME. Uh, Be sure to reference the impairment guidelines. I've seen a lot of times where we're talking about um, potential exposure, like, all right, we'll end up with a 50% LWEC or a 35% SLU, and I'm looking at the analysis that I get from maybe the claims adjuster or, um, you know, whoever is, is crunching the numbers. It's very, very important to reference the impairment guidelines. They are clear, they're concise, they tell us what to do. They tell us what percentage is allocated to a particular injury, um, all of the criteria that needs to be met. This is how we're able to predict um, the 60% LWEC, the 75% LWEC, or the 25% ELWIC. We should be incorporating them into our analyses. For SLUs, if there's been a finding, then we know there's no additional money moving for indemnity, except in rare cases where um, they would file for a a, a reopener to reopen the, the indemnity portion because there's a change in condition. That's something is usually litigated, but it happens only maybe like 1% of cases. Generally, with the SLU, they take their payments and they go away, right, and they stop trading. So there's no more indemnity exposure for the SLU when there's been an SLU finding. For the LWEC cases, and um, so just to clarify, I'm sure you all know, the SLU cases are generally the, the limbs, the, the, the shoulder, the elbows, the wrist, the fingers, the knees, the feet, um, and, and the toes. Um, the LWEC cases, which is what we see in the construction cases because of the nature of the accident, someone's always fallen from a scaffold, or a bucket or a step stool it's almost always a fall right so the next injury, the backs injured uh supposedly and those uh those drive up the cost of the, the the claim um or traumatic brain injury which is like the new back fusion that's something they're pursuing now anyway so for those kinds of cases we're looking at lwec loss of wage earning capacity that's how permanent impairment is calculated in those cases if there's been a finding take into consideration the amount of LWEC paid out already. What I mean by this is for LWEC, there would be a cap 300 weeks, 400 weeks. If you've already paid out 100 weeks, then you know you should be getting credit for that when you're calculating or negotiating settlements. We should also be taking into consideration the present day value of the outstanding Elwick awards, right? We're not giving away extra money here, no extra dollars for the claimants. If we were to give you a lump sum money today, we're doing it at the present day value, not what it would be at the end of 400 weeks. Okay, medical exposure. I just talked about it a little bit. Um, we should be looking at the recommended or the planned treatment. What is the anticipated cost? The claims uh, handlers, the adjusters, are very good with putting this together because of their expertise. Um, looking at the medical fee schedule, the the actual cost that they would have to pay for a particular treatment. And with our um, with our experience seeing certain doctors or a certain a group of doctors and certain attorneys, we know where the medical is going to go. So in collaboration with the claims handlers, we're able to say, all right, well, you know, we think this guy's really going to undergo this additional surgery. He's going to try to do an additional year of cognitive treatment, even though it hasn't been uh, working or even though he hasn't um, needed it. But we do have to, for the most part, take into consideration that future treatment. Again, the medications Will this claimant need medications forever? Oh yes, we've seen them. They need it forever, supposedly, right? Um, And again, if the MSA is needed, uh, the the liability will be based on the MSA, especially if we have to get CMS approval, we have to disclose the MSA and we'll be stuck stuck with it. So if the MSA is coming back at $300,000 and the claimant's on Medicare, and we have to get CMS approval, then we're gonna have to pay up to $300,000 for that. All right, so section 29, section 29. This is something we do all the time in these construction claims, um, when we're talking about global settlements or you know, when there's a third party claim. So I refer to the third party claims as the general liability claims. I don't know, it's more sophisticated I think, but it's the same thing I'm talking about, right? Section 29, workers' comp law, section 29, provides that a workers' compensation carrier that has paid out indemnity and medical benefits has a lien on the proceeds of any third-party settlements. Now, Clients often ask, well, you know, they're 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 really suing me on the GL side or the third party side. Do I still have any Section 29 rights here? Because it's really the same pot of money. And I'm talking about like the OSIPs and the CSIPs, the wrap-up clients, right? And my answer is, of course, yes. I mean, it can be done two ways. It can be done in negotiation of settlement, will waiver lien, full a full waiver or a partial waiver in uh, exchange for a $0. $0.32 and a certain amount on the GL side, That's usually the easier way. The a little more complicated way with some back and forth would be, all right, so we recover a lien, and then we take that money and we pay it out on the section 32, and then we close the general liability claim and the workers' comp claim at the same thing. That's a lot of like back and forth, and I think we lose a lot of um, negotiation leverage when we do it that way. So, the answer is Section 29 applies and use it in negotiating settlement. Okay, how does the reimbursement work? So here's where we talk about our friends, Kelly, Burns, and Bissell, right? They're the ones that really laid out how this Section 29 lien reimbursement works. So I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible. But as a reminder, this uh, this webinar is being recorded, so you can go back and watch it. Um, and if you have any questions, reach out to me directly. I'll try to send you maybe like some of the slides, the info, and the examples that I'm going to put up because, I don't know, it took me a while to learn. I'm, uh, you know, no denying it. It took me a while to wrap my head around this, and it's not the easiest, but we'll get through it. Okay, so... Kelly, our friend Kelly. Kelly addresses indemnity benefits, right? Burns also addresses indemnity benefits, and I'll go through the difference in a second. And Bissell addresses medical benefits. So we've got it all covered. These are the seminal case law. These are the ones that we follow in calculating how much we're really entitled to under uh, reimbursement. Let's start with Kelly. So under Kelly, well, so to start with, Workers' Comp carriers receive two potential benefits from settlement of third-party action. The first is reimbursement of its current lien, the indemnity and medical paid to date. So if you've paid out $100,000 as of today, you're entitled to recover uh, your share of that $100,000. All right and the other situation is where the workers comp carrier would be responsible for ongoing benefits you can take a credit against the payment of these ongoing benefits until the third party settlement proceed is exhausted and this is what is commonly referred to as the holiday kind of like taking a holiday from payments then when you've recouped your money then you start making payments at the regular rates again okay so Kelly outlines how reimbursement calculations are to be made, and it applies in situations where the claimant's future workers' comp benefits are non-speculative. Sorry, I don't really know how to pronounce that word, but you know what I mean. <laughs> are in cases where the claimant is no longer receiving workers' comp benefits at all, okay? So non-speculative means Cases where there are death benefits, we know what's gonna be paid out. Um, Scheduled loss of use, we know 35%, that's gonna be paid out. And permanent total disability, we know that that's not gonna change, it's gonna continue until the claimant um, uh, dies, right? The the rate is not gonna change because we don't have a claimant's return to work. Okay, so next. To do a Kelly calculation, we need to know the gross workers' comp lien, that is the indemnity and medical paid-to-date. We also need to know the present value of the future benefits, so those death benefits, the SLU, the permanent total disability, we have to crunch the present-day value. We need to know the litigation costs expended in the general liability claim. We get this um, at the time of settlement, the closing statement, sometimes uh, we just get the information verbally or through an email, you know, the attorney's fees are X amount and we paid $5,000 in costs. And then we need to calculate the percentage of the third party uh, uh, claim, the, the reimbursement that was, Um, I'm sorry, the proceeds that was spent on the litigation, right, so once we know what the attorney's fees are, And the uh, costs we have to calculate work percent. And what I'm talking about is the common one third, 33%, right? That's the standard, but sometimes we do get specific and it's like a 34.9%. And that's how we use to calculate our reimbursement. All right. How to calculate the actual reimbursement? So, under Kelly, the gross workers' comp lien. Or the gross workers' comp plus the present-day value of the future benefits, minus the litigation uh, percentage, which is generally, like I mentioned, the 33.33%. Um, it can go as high as 36. I've never really seen anything higher than that. But if you have, let me know. I just think it's it's within that range. Here's an example and a break from my face. You get to watch this screen now. Okay, so. We have settlement amount here of four hundred thousand dollars. Your litigation costs, your fees and disbursements, one hundred and forty thousand dollars. Litigation cost percentage would be the one hundred and forty thousand divided by the four hundred thousand. We have thirty-five percent. Your lien to date, the total amount, is ninety thousand dollars. Thirty-five percent of your gross lien would be $31,500, which would be your um, the amount that we work with, right? Because we have to reduce it by the uh, litigation cost percentage. So your actual workers' comp recoverable lien would be that grand $90,000 less the $31,500 equals $58,500. So of that $90,000 you've spent to date, you are legally entitled to recover $58,500. And then just to show you what's going to go into the claimant's pocket here, because I know that's important when we want to do the settlement, we want to see how much this guy is really getting. If his net settlement proceeds are $400,000, he spent one hundred and forty dollars on litigation costs minus the lien that we're going to recover, he's going to get $201,500. All right, I'll leave this here for a second. And let's move on to the next example. Oh, I should have been clear. So this is an example where there's no future benefits. So we're doing like a section 32 at this point. The next example that I have here is where the claimant's benefits are continuing, right? So we talked about the death benefits, the SLU or the PTDs. The settlement amount here is $400,000. The litigation costs still 140. The percentage is still 35%. The lien is still 90%. Now we have to calculate the future benefits. So $300 a week permanent total disability benefits. That's my example here. Claimant's expected to live an additional 40 years. The total he'll get is $624,000. And we're just going to assume for. clean numbers that the present-day value of $624,000 is $100K. So the lien plus the future benefits is equal to $190,000. And then we have to reduce that by the 35%. So now we're wondering, wait, why are we not reducing only the prior? right? Only the prior paid indemnity medical. This is because the distinction here is because there's ongoing benefits that he's actually entitled to. So the $90,000 lien is then reduced by the future benefits. um, So less $66,500. And we get $23,500. And this would be the recoverable lien amount. And then the workers' uh, workers comp carrier get to take a holiday on the balance of it. All right, so the net settlement am- amount that's going to the, the claimant, it would be $236,500. And just so you see the, the math here, it would take the workers' comp carrier about 788 weeks, 15 years, to pay out the net amount of the settlement if we were doing $300 a week. And then the carrier would get to take a holiday for 15 years and resume the payments at $300 a week until the claimant dies. All right, I hope I didn't confuse you there. Let's move on to the final Kelly example. So this is an example where the claimant's benefits are continuing and the workers' comp carrier may need to pay fresh money. What fresh money? I know, there are some situations where we have to, and it really depends on the prior amount that has been paid. So I think it's, it's very important for us to consider this also, um, because we don't want a claimant's attorney saying, hey, the reason why we have a higher settlement demand and we're not budging is because my guy would be entitled to additional money going forward. So in this situation, the settlement amount is 400000 again, litigation costs 140000 the 35% uh, remains, the lien is only $20,000 here and the future benefits, we're using the permanent total disability benefits here again of $300 a week and the same uh, present value of $100,000, what we have to do is uh, add our current lien paid to date to the the, the, the present day value of the future benefits that we're going to be liable for. And if you see the math here, 35%, uh, 35% of 120,000, we get 40,000, and the 20,000 lien is then reduced by the future benefit. So we're subtracting the 40,000 from the 20,000, now we got a negative 20,000. So what do we do here? That doesn't seem right, right? Here is where the carrier then has to pay the $20,000 in fresh money. Um, the claimant settlement proceeds in this situation after crunching the numbers would be about $280,000. And the carrier would then get to take a holiday for approximately 18 years to recoup that money. All right, these are the three classic Kelly situations. And so Kelly is usually the less popular one that we talk about when we're doing the construction claims. Um, The focus is usually on burns. But there are a couple things I have to point out about burns and uh, what exactly it stands for. So as I mentioned earlier, Burns also um, discusses the indemnity uh, portion of the claim and how to uh, get 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 the money back, how to calculate the money, right? So it outlines how calculations are made when the future benefits are speculative, where we don't know exactly what's going to be paid out, like an SLU or a permanent total disability, all right? It's going to be like our general uh, LWEC case where we have a, um, a permanent partial disability situation. Uh, also something to note, um, I have it here up in the slide with regards to um, like a permanent partial disability. If you're wondering why that is considered um, speculative, it's because the claimant can return to work and the benefits would cut off. Or there would be a reduced earnings claim and award made where you're actually paying less. So it could potentially change. So there's still some speculation as to what you're really going to pay out. Okay, bear with me. We're getting through this. Uh, So unlike Kelly, where the benefits are calculated at a time of settlement, uh, benefits are calculated on an ongoing uh, basis. So we've all heard it. We're going to be doing it at the Burns rate, right? We're going to be paying indemnity and medicals at the Burns rate because it's ongoing. Um, the claimant will continue to receive payment at a reduced rate, and the rate is being calculated using the Kelly formula. So see the connection, Kelly and Burns. The formula, the Kelly uh, the Kelly formula is actually used to, to calculate the, the the Burns rate. There's a little bit of a distinction between the cases there. All right. So the payments will continue until the claimant's net settlement amount is exhausted, until you've recouped um, all that you're supposed to have recouped um, on the workers' comp side. And after the burns payments are exhausted, um, full payments are going to resume in the workers' comp plane. So After, let's just say, you've gotten your $400,000 back, then you start to make, it, make the, the, the usual amount of the workers' comp payments. Here's the classic burns example um, with your settlement amount of $400,000. Litigation cost of 140, the cost percentage of 35%. Here your lien is $90,000. 35% of 90,000 is 31,500. Your workers' comp recoverable lien is a uh, 58,500. The net settlement uh, to claimants gonna be 201,500. And here's where we talk about the burns rate, your weekly benefit payment amount that you're going to continue paying because, you know, payments are required under the workers' comp claim, the claimant's still out of work, would be the burns rate and it would be 35% of the weekly benefit. So if your weekly benefit's $300, your burns rate would be $105. This is very clear-cut. I think the complications are more with the Kelly calculations, um, but I I think it's important to understand how the different Kelly calculations work because at the end of the day, um, your settlements, your settlement evaluation, they're all in the numbers that we're going to crunch, right? The decision to settle or not settle or to do a standalone versus a global, that decision is really in the numbers that we're crunching. Finally, Bissell. Let's not forget about our friend Bissell. Medicals are very, very important. It's very straightforward. This case actually talked about how um, medical benefits are uh, reimbursed um, and, and the carrier's right to take uh, their, their burns credit also. So if the medicals remain open, the workers' comp carrier is liable for its equitable share of litigation uh, costs and future medical benefits. So it's usually at the burns rate, and it's usually as the treatment occurs. So we never pay a lump sum, and courts can courts can direct how the payments are made, but I don't think I've ever seen a case where the board um, says something other than the claimant's going to undergo the treatment, he's going to pay for the treatment, and then submit the bill to the insurance carrier for reimbursement at the burns rate. That's really how it's done. Um, We have a handful of cases that we weren't able to settle that are still open and we're paying the burns rate. Um, And and that's that's generally how it's done and that's how we keep track of what the potential medical exposure is going to be. Um, All right, so I just went over this, the claim is responsible and then the court can uh, say how it's going to be done. All right, so that's it. That's it for calculating uh, exposure in multi-jurisdictional claims. Those are all the factors that I look at when I'm telling my client uh, what I think the claim is worth. Uh, like I said, I'm, I'm usually on, po- uh, on point with the, um, the exposures uh it's just because of my years of experience doing this so you know if 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 you want to get an idea of, of what the real value of your claim is ask your attorney if they're experienced and they know what they're doing they should be able to um pinpoint uh all of the factors that are taken into consideration all of the treatment issues and giving you a very close estimate um, i think it's very key also to talk to your general liability counterpart. Um, to see what they're thinking, and this also helps us to come up with um, a decision with regards uh, to whether to do a full lien waiver or partial lien waiver. Those are all the things I talked about in last month's webinar, so if you missed that, you can take a look at that one. The links are on our website, Um, but overall, one of the things I've been preaching all year long and for the past two years when I've been doing these webinars is communicate. Communicate with your attorney, with your adjuster, and with your GL account, uh, counterpart, I've seen demands for millions of dollars being reduced to like a million under two. And it's really because everyone's in the same page. Everyone's sharing their knowledge and they're crunching the numbers the right way. Let's not give the claimants extra money. Let's not give the claimants attorneys extra money. Let's do it right and do the calculations properly. Um, So this is going to be recorded. It's going to be placed in our website uh, by the end of the week. You can go back and watch it. If you want me to send you the slides with the examples so you can go over them more clearly or you'd like me to go over them, give me a call and I can walk you through it. All right, so that's it for today's webinar. I will see you here again next month. December 6th is our final one for the year. Um, I'm going to do a little bit of a wrap-up and wrap-ups, see what I did there. And um, I'm going to talk about uh, some notable case law in the construction um, area this year, workers comp. And there's a couple of GL ones that I'd like to talk to you about. So we'll talk about those. And as always, if there's anything you want me to address, like let me know ahead of time and I'll try to incorporate it into the webinar. All right. Thanks, everyone. Have a great November. Happy Thanksgiving. Enjoy the rest of your fall. I'll see you here in December. See ya.